This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, it's David Averin, and welcome to the Why Customers Leave podcast. So here's a question. Who is your customer or client? I'm not talking about your, your demographically niche target market, but who, the person, the people on the other side of the transaction, the human beings, the good people with rich, meaningful lives or profound struggles who you encounter and hope to engage in business and hope to build relationships with. Well, my guest today is a master of the human condition. You might have seen Neil Ford relay one of his inspirational stories or life lessons online. And today, we are going to explore the strategy and methodology behind the internet sensation that is Neil Ford. I'm David Averin, and this is the Why Customers Leave podcast, back in 20 seconds. Are you ready to future-proof your business? Well, sit back, because customer experience expert David Averin brings you the Why Customers Leave podcast. Featuring outspoken thought leaders and business builders as they share their creative strategies for serving a new generation of customers and clients. Listen in, or you can watch the video version of the conversation. Now, here's David Averin. And thanks and welcome to the Why Customers Leave podcast. Today, today is a treat. You do not, I, if honestly, if you have a chance to watch the video version of this, just go to my website or go to, go to the YouTube channel. Of course, we're on all the other podcast platforms as well. But today... I, I have the great privilege of, of talking with my man crush. Uh, I am such <laughs> a big fan of Neil Ford. Um, advertising genius. I mean, what a great um, background, everything else. I'll give you a quick introduction in a minute. But a lot of people might know him from his internet videos and, and the spelling of his name. Even if you're starting to listen to this or watch it and you have a second, you can pause it or you can go online and take a look. Neil, N-E-A-L, and it's F-O-A-R-D. And I'm sure you've seen it. I'm sure it, it's a video that somebody has passed along to you because it spoke to them. Something about not only the stories themselves. We know so many people are talking about the value of stories, but there's a mannerism, there's a message, there's a kindness and a warmth behind this that has earned him a legion of fans. We're going to talk about that more today. Let me do a quick formal introduction. Neil Ford has spent 25 years in advertising and marketing, creating award-winning campaigns for global brands like Toyota, heard of him, Budweiser, Sony. He's the author of an innovative creative coaching series. He was named Worldwide Director of Creative Learning for Global Advertising Juggernaut, Saatchi and Saatchi. Neil has been charged with conceiving effective brand experiences that help brands treat customers like friends instead of targets. Beautifully said. Most recently, he gained a following on social media for his inspirational videos about the kindness of everyday people. He has been called a modern sage by me and a welcome messenger for a tired and cynical world. Neil Ford, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, David. It's such a pleasure to be on with you. Absolutely. This is what a great connection. We've, we've connected online before, but it's the first time we've had a chance to have that, that conversation in, in, in person. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in having a conversation to understand sort of the genesis of where you are today, because it's easy to just jump to the success of the, the storytelling and the things that you've done online. And we're going to delve a little bit more, but tell me a little bit more about your background. So I understand where did, where was the wisdom born? Where was the perspective that drove your current approach um, marinated? Um, uh, my career 
was in advertising and marketing, but I really didn't start out that way. I, I uh, left high school and didn't get to college right away. And I wound up working in a factory and, um, you know, I, I developed a kind of humility from that. Uh, there was a way back when, when I was a kid, Oakland relative to San Francisco had a real chip on its shoulder because San Francisco was where all the cool people were and was all the cool stuff was happening. And I remember hearing once from a San Franciscan who heard I was from Oakland and he said, you know what the best thing about Oakland is? The view of San Francisco. <laughs> and we carried around this kind of chip. And I discovered that I had that same chip before I went off to college, you know, that you develop where you're, you're feeling like, you know, the, I don't think the working guy gets enough respect. And then when I, was, I got out of college, I did the same thing. I wound up on a couple of blue collar jobs, working on a lumber yard and, and um, doing some demolition. And what, what that did for me was whenever I heard the word consumer, I thought to myself, what a, what a pompous phrase. On the other end of every purchase is a human being. This, by the way, David, is why I'm so stoked to be talking to you. And, and how, old, how, old, how old were you at the time? Give me a time reference. Well, I mean, like, you know, when I first started out and I got out of high school, I would have been about 17. And then, uh, and then when I got out of college, I was 21. It's a profound um, observation for a young person. Well, I, you know, I, I think I'm hypersensitive, like in a bad way. Like I got real thin skin about critiques and so forth. But anyway, nevertheless, what... What happened was I, I I used to, I can't stand bullies. And right. the, the first thing that a bully doesn't realize is there's a human being on the other end of their torment. And, the, and it struck me that the advertising industry was very much like that, where they didn't have sufficient respect for the people they were talking to. And as I was saying before, you seem to really have your finger on something, okay? Because you're saying, look, uh, let's let's think of these people as having a relationship with us. You know, I'll give you a one thing that struck me when I was working on Anheuser-Busch business, we walked into the St. Louis headquarters one day and on in big brass letters on their wall, they had this marvelous motto. And it was making friends is our business. And I thought, oh, I will never see a corporate motto that good ever again. Just think about it. I go, making friends is our business. That is a good business to be in. Um, and it struck me that any kind of communication for any product, whether it's a car or, or a banking service or insurance or whatever, it should have as its first obligation, what is it going to take to turn this person into a friend? Like, uh, I, I want them to, whenever they think of me, I want them to think first, wow, I'm glad I know them. And not every business does that. They don't walk into every transaction thinking, what's it going to take to turn this person into a friend? You know, you, uh, Dave, you might've had this experience. You go to an airline or you go to a hotel and there's something about that person at the hotel. They just have the knack, yeah. right? They just make you feel welcome. So I was staying at a Ritz Carlton and they're incredibly professional, but I also stayed not a week later in one of those little courtyard by Marriott's. And this gal behind the counter was just so frisky and funny and so keen to remember what I liked so that the next time I saw her, she would be able to do it you know, better. I just thought, wow, I don't know who got hold of her and trained her, or maybe she just came out of the factory this way. But I feel, and you know, the Ritz is so famous for its customer service. Right, of course. But, th but this gal had it. She had that magic. 
And, you know, it made me feel as good about the courtyard by Marriott as I felt about the Ritz-Carlton, which is superb. You know, right. and individuals can do that. But let me, but let me yeah. throw something back because you and I both work with, with sales professionals, representatives from organization, and they always parrot the lines that for us, it's about the relationship. They don't use the word friendship, but they, they want to, they want to build a relationship. We want to build a relationship. Yeah. But what's interesting is conversely, I don't see a lot of, of customers, clients, prospects, whatever you want to call them looking for a relationship. They're looking for a good product. They're looking for a, an easy transaction. Now they'll stay for the relationship. They'll appreciate a relationship, but they're not looking for a relationship. They're looking huh. for something to meet a need. And so I see a big disconnect right there. Um, they appreciate relationships. I'll, I'll talk to business owners and leaders and they'll say, what's your, what's your competitive advantage? What's your secret sauce? And they'll say, it's this, it's the relationship. And I said, no, no, that's a, that's a retention tool, right? What's your attraction? What is it that, mm. because I think they, they don't use the word friendship. They see a relationship, but they want it because they want a long-term transaction, right? Mm -hmm. And so give me, give me your perspective on, on that disconnect. Cause you have that epiphany at a young age. Um, all salespeople talk about it, but I'm not sure that they understand what the customers are really looking for. Well, I'll give you one slant on it, which is, yeah, that, please. Um, uh, I had a lot of experience working on the Toyota brand and I started out as a very young guy working on Toyota. And I had a kind of a, I had a kind of a snob opinion about it, which is that they weren't very exciting. They're much, they're much cooler now, but back then it was pretty much, you know, it was the Toyota Corolla. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, we had one. A, it was a refer and they're effing fantastic cars. But anyway, back then I sort of looked down my nose at it and because it wasn't exciting, but over time I started to really, I, I started to really respect where it was coming from, like a vehicle like that, which was, they were so proud of the fact that when you bought one of these things, it was going to be so reliable, so trouble-free, so dependable. You'd come to think of it almost like a horse, like you'd fall in love with it because it never let you down. And the mindset of Toyota was so long-term, like they would, I'll give you an example of what I mean by their, the whole corporation, the way they would go long-term. They have this fantastic factory in San Antonio, Texas. It's gorgeous. And it is, and it is, it turns out fantastic trucks. They make pretty much all the trucks that they sell in America, in America, they make them in San Antonio, the Tundras and the Tacomas and so on. And they make it a point that whatever community they go into, they are, that community is way better off than if they hadn't come in. One small example being the water that goes into the San Antonio plant comes out cleaner than it went in. And because they got to be real sensitive about the water table in San Antonio, sure. but they're not just sensible about how they use it. They, they make sure that as a member of that community, it's going to be better that they're there than if they hadn't been there. And they do that all over the world. It's their, it's their approach. They, they treat, they treat their towns. They treat their people. They treat their customers with so much long-term respect, you're going to be glad you knew me. You know, 10 years from now, you're never going to have to apologize for something I've done. And, you know, just like a lot of other car companies, they've had recalls. But in almost every example, people that have gone through a Toyota recall are happier than if the recall had never happened because Toyota handles the recall so classily, so overkill on making sure that they do right by their customers. You go, look, everybody makes mistakes but nobody recovers like Toyota. 
And that to me is an example of a company that will, no matter what's happening in EV or whatever that you know happens to cars, Toyota's going to be in the transportation business well into the 22nd century. I feel pretty confident. So here's the question though. How do we impart that story? Do we let, um, do we do it organically by just those who've had a great experience? Or is there a conscious effort, not, not a, a, a predetermined or, or um, I'm trying to think of the best word. It's not calculated. They're doing the right thing because they need to do the right thing, right? Legally, ethically, morally. But is there um, a strategic effort to communicate that? Or well, do we just do good work and hope that the marketplace figures it out? Yeah, I don't think you can. Uh, I don't think you can entirely count on a marketplace to figure it out because, um, well, you know, people have a, a very limited mind space. They got a lot of things to worry about. Right. We're and, you know, busy. how do you? Right. This is why. This is why it's so important for any brand to kind of have a word that immediately springs to mind when anybody thinks of you for, you know, for decades for Volvo, it was like, if you said Volvo, they'd go, Oh, safety, safety. Right. And you'd say Toyota and they go reliable or some version of that. And, um, but, but what I believe that any, any brand can do when it's out in the world is to celebrate its tribe. That is every communication should be a love letter to the people that dig what you do. And I'll give you an example of like, Anheuser-Busch, for example, when they would advertise around Christmas, you knew they were going to do a Clydesdale ad. Absolutely. And it, and it was going to be a lovely, genuinely heartfelt celebration. Hug at the heartstrings. Sure. Oh, and, and they've done some beautiful ones over the years. You know, like uh, Dalmatian and a Clydesdale. Yeah, I was going to say. Right? Yeah. We, we can think of all of those. Right, right. Exactly. They, they spring to mind so easily because storytelling has that capacity to hit a heartstring to make you go, oh, yeah, dang, I hadn't thought of it that way. And and so Anheuser-Busch also for years and years did working man advertising. It would celebrate, right. uh, you know, these uh, the, the wonderful everyday uh things that people would do with one another because they were, they were, they had old fashioned values. Yeah. I think there was and, one with the, with Paul Harvey narration. I wouldn't, sort of wouldn't surprise me. One of the best, one of the wouldn't, best. Yeah. Oh God. I love Paul Harvey. Um, and what I believe for any company like say a Toyota is to it's advertising should be a love letter to the people that dig what they do. And that means a celebration of people who are stalwart and intrepid and don't give up. and try to do the right thing. And, you know, there are, there are so many beautiful ways to do that. They, they did the most marvelous um, Super Bowl or no uh, Olympic ads that featured athletes that had been, uh, you know, that were handicapped in some way that yeah, were absolutely. You know, right. And they, and they do these beautiful sentiments around something we can all agree in. And you walk away with something so long lasting and such an emotional impression. You don't even know that the next time that you see the brand, you can't, you can't trace back why you just want them to win, but you do. Right. And in that but, but sense, go ahead. I was going to say, tell me really quickly from your experience though, I want to go, I want to, I want to talk about that because it was a departure from the traditional yeah. features and benefits. It was a departure yeah. from the great catchy jingle that you remember it in your mind to do that kind of institutional advertising that doesn't necessarily talk about the product or the price in the early days, that had to have been a hard sell. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. Cause how, do, where do you, how do you measure the ROI on that one? Well, okay. So you're, you're absolutely correct. So, uh, 
I knew uh, I, I knew a lot of Toyota dealers, and they were uh, like any group of people. They were on a spectrum, and some people were real hard chargers, and they were very much as you were suggesting, which is all about the price, and you got to sell the car. I mean, sell it like it's on sale. And, and then there were other guys that go, "Come on, the product is so bulletproof. I don't understand why you're just not talking about that." The Toyota dealers were like any group of people, they were on a spectrum. And some were super aggressive about making sure that they wanted every message to be about how the product was on sale. And then there was at the other end, the dealers that were real true believers, you know, true believers that the product was superior. And there was right. never any reason to do anything except to talk about the superior of the product, because that would inflate its value. And when they came in to, and talked price, they would, you know, pretty much accept anything. Okay, well, we were always having this argument about this phrase, the phrase was, there may never be a better time to buy than right now. Now, it used to drive me crazy because of this. If you really unpack that phrase, there may never be a better time to buy than right now. Is that a lie? No. But it's equally true that there may be a better time to buy than right now. When a statement is equally true and untrue, it's essentially inert. It offers you nothing. Right. It has no... It may have calories, but it has no nutritional value. And I, it bothered me that they didn't intend for people to hear it the way they said it. They only intended them to misinterpret what they'd said. The, the ones that loved the phrase wanted people to think, oh, they just said there will never be a better time to buy than right now. They were being intentionally deceptive. And that struck me as so not Toyota. And what else? It struck me as the bulk of the dealers, despite the reputation of car dealers, the bulk of the dealers were super cool. They were like, they were doing the best they could to deliver awesome service. And there was one dealer in particular I used to love. His favorite phrase was, I'll lose a little money to make a friend. And the reason he was willing to do that was he knew that when you had a loyal customer, you would wind up selling them about 12 cars, right? right. Yeah. So- so the lifetime value of he was big into lifetime value and he was he was a killer man this guy made so much money because he was always so good to people but anyway my point go, going back to okay but how what do you say about the brand the ones that believed in in phrases like i'll lose a little money to make a friend the the ones that believed that the the product message should be a love letter to the people that buy it ultimately they wound up being incredibly successful and beloved in their communities. And the others, you know, I won't use some of the phrases, but they were pretty salty phrases about like right. where, where they wound but, up. But isn't it the difference between those who are who are perceived as transactional and those who are yeah. relational? I mean, that's, we see that, but, yeah. but, but, it, but it comes from having a long view and uh, of your business. And even when, you know, I speak for a living and even when we, we lose a gig and we already have our, our speakers this year, but we'll, we'll look at you for next year. And it's like, that's good. I got to pay my mortgage next year too. Right. Yeah. And yeah. be able to and, and to build those relationships. But, let, but let's let's go back to stories. Now, of course, stories have have come far more mainstream. Doesn't mean it's always done well um, to help create the story for the brand. Right. Mm. Um, talk to us about the, the, the elevation of understanding and recognition for the value of that um, and those who do it well and those who don't. I mean, talk about the current state of storytelling sort of in, in brand development and, um, and, and communicating, um, I was going to say value proposition, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Well, uh, I'll tell you what's what, the current state there. Yeah. So uh, it's a funny thing that as you, as you suggest, 
the, the very term storytelling is kind of in vogue right now. Very much. And, and uh, I, will it ever go out of style? Well, the term will go out of style, but the art form will, will not. And here's how I know that, because it's the original art form. It's not the world's oldest profession, but it is the thing that um, it's the thing our brains have been built to do. For example, when I, it, it is very not hard to imagine a bunch of cave people sitting around in front of a fireplace a hundred, hundred thousand years ago, and essentially having the same conversations we're having like right now, just about different things. Sure. And, and one of them is going to say, uh, do you remember when Okna killed the bison? And then they, and then somebody will go, Okna face the giant bison with a broken leg. And, but, and, you know, I mean, it's this, it, this right. never changes. And we, it's how we remember our history, uh, you know, mythical great figures, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. What do people know about Teddy Roosevelt? You know, charging up San Juan Hill. People are so accustomed to hearing stories and passing along stories, whether it's in the form of gossip or whether it's in repeating something they see on TV or reminiscing about a sporting event or, and I could go on and on. You would all understand that storytelling is such an ancient art form that it is, I believe, underappreciated in that this is how you can reach people. Right. Now, there are a couple of things that strike me as people are often underestimating or overestimating their power. Now, here's, here's something that people underestimate. And that is when you tell a story that is about essentially the values of the person you're talking to, that is a, about things they love or that are important to them, you have their attention yeah, because they can so easily place themselves in the tale. And Here's something that people overestimate. They overestimate the need to self-aggrandize. They, when you tell a story and you are the hero, you're not doing yourself any big favors. You're hamstringing yourself because when you tell a story when you are the hero, you are the, you are no longer standing next to the person talking to them. You are you are putting yourself up on a box and asking to be worshipped. And there's this marvelous quote from George Orwell, where he says, no autobiography is to be trusted unless it reveals something disgraceful. Any man who gives a good account of himself is probably lying because any life when looked at from the inside is little more than a series of defeats. Yeah. And when I read that, yeah. go ahead, sir. I'll, I'll tell you the ones for me, the, the ones that have really resonated, um, the ones that have, have had additional life online is where I was very self-deprecating. Uh, a scenario where I really screwed up. And, yeah. and then of course, there's the, the lesson in the loss or something of that. But yeah. but I think it's a, it's a good transition because uh, I know for many who are watching or listening, um, want to talk about your stories. And uh, for those who haven't, go on Instagram, go on TikTok, go on YouTube and, um, and search up Neil Ford, F-O-A-R-D. And some of the most profoundly inspirational, I think, I think the mechanism for how you record it, um, the melodic, um, soft, the soft voice in which you do it, tell the stories. <laughs> um, um, I want to talk to you about how it's just remarkable sound, but it's, it's so um, kind and revealing and um, anecdotal with always a, a clear purpose at the end. Talk to us before we, we go into some of the specifics. What was the genesis and what did you hope to get out of them when you started doing them? Um, I'll tell you what the, the basic impetus for the stories was the fact that my daughter never met my dad 
And it is, it's the thing where I always go, oh God, that's so sad. He would have loved her and she, him, because he was, uh, and by the way, there's kind of interesting thing about my voice in particular. It's my dad's voice. I can, when I hear it, I go, oh yeah, that's the old man. And, and I can hear him in my head. And I find myself more and more as I get older, speaking like he used to speak. He sounded like an old film noir movie from the 40s. He had these turns of phrases that were right out of an Alan Ladd detective movie. Oh, and, fine. Uh, yeah, he would say, I didn't get a shave in the ice, you read me? And he would say stuff like that. <laughs> and But in any case, uh, because my daughter never met my dad, I felt like it was important to tell her some stories about him. And in particular, the, the things that I learned from him. And so that was sort of the starting point. It was a kind of a record, if you will, of, mm-hmm. of the things that were important to me. What I discovered from people's comments and the things that they would share, like the, a couple of these videos went pretty, it's pretty viral. You know, yeah. like, and um, people would say, oh my God, uh, you know, thank you for this. It, it reminds me that we're not all bad. And I thought, oh, yeah, now that you mention it, the media that we get soaked in, by and large, is it's kind of negative. Not, right. ne- not. I mean, let's face it, TV news feels like it's, uh, their obligation is to you know, keep us in a perpetual panic. You know, it's, it feels like their job is to say, see this problem way over here, thousands of miles away, right. that are life-threatening to those people? That's your problem. But, but in a way, Neil, it's also low-hanging fruit, isn't it? Oh I mean, you God, think about kidding. even if you you think about, and I'm taking off subject for a minute. We'll go back. You think about sort of the classic uh, horror movies, the ones that really built suspense, the Rosemary's Baby, the things that scarred oh. us in in our oh. youth, right? Right. Today, it's the low hanging fruit. It's somebody jumping out and stabbing him in the chest, yeah. right? It's really yeah. easy at the end of a romance to kill off the protagonist to elicit tears. It's lazy. Yeah. But yeah. but but this but the stories that you do are they're real they're relatable they're inspirational and so when you started them as sort of that love letter to your dad through your daughter or to your daughter from your dad yeah exactly how how did the feedback um drive future uh videos um I, i got a sense that people treated the videos almost like an aspirin tablet for some kind of pain they were feeling and so i thought you know what i'm gonna do is uh i'm just gonna keep telling all the stories that i can from my own personal experience, because in spite of the fact that we keep hearing how awful we all are and how we're all at each other's throats, my experience was actually pretty good. Now, uh, in other words, I was starting to notice this is, these people are holding the door open for you, or they're letting you in traffic. And you know, for every time somebody cuts you off in traffic, I'll bet you there's a case where somebody let you in. Or five. uh, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Exactly. Because- Little little Anne Frank there, right? If you just started to pay attention, what you're going to discover is that the reason people don't make a big deal out of the small courtesies every day is because they are so abundant, they're not news. Right. They're so common that you, you, you're not, it, to you, the default setting is, you know, that people say thank you and they mean it. And, uh, you know, my experience in New York, New York City, oh man, I loved New York. Uh, My experience in New York City was it had this reputation for everybody being all abrupt and nasty. And that was not my experience at all. They're actually remarkably sentimental and sweet. Now it comes off as brusque because they're impatient, because, because they're in a hurry. But I, you know, every diner, you know, case and, and people that were 
they got this brilliant sense of humor where they it seems like they're being terse, but in fact they're just winking at you like uh, you know, hey, it's all gonna be alright, you know, relax. And um, and you know what? All over America, whether it's Wyoming or San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York, it's all the same deal. It's just different styles. But you know what? People are pretty much 95, 6, 96 percent pretty awesome. Yeah. And you know what? You know where we get in trouble is where you start to think that's not true. And then you feel like a sucker for being cool. And that's right. because we keep getting banged over the head that we're all trash and everything's a train wreck and a dumpster fire. It's like, no, 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 no. Well, the Stop. minute you put yourself out there, you know, you can put a picture of a golden retriever puppy online and you'll be, you'll be <laughs> lambasted in five minutes. What do you hate cats? Somebody. Oh, you're Somebody. Into, into animal bondage, right? Yeah. But, but I don't you think, and maybe coming out of COVID is part of it, but I think it, I think it's universal is I think what you do, and I'm going to gush over you for a minute. I, I think what you do is I, I think you give people a pause for a great story. I, I got to believe that your stuff has got to be some of the most forwarded. I forwarded to my kids. I mean, my kids are all sort of 19 to 28 years old, and I forwarded to them uh, to see it. And isn't it the same thing that's driving this passion behind Ted Lasso, for example? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Boy. Just a little kindness and optimism as a reprieve. And it's one of the shows I put off for a while because I was like, yeah, it's the fish out of water. I, I get the ugly American guy. And people are like, no. And I came to realize a couple episodes in, it's not the show I thought it was going to be. I was exactly right? the same way, David. Precisely the same way. I, I, I didn't realize that superficially, it, that it wasn't super. Yeah, he's a buffoon. You, got it. Right. No, he's not. He's complex and he's deep and he's and, kind. There's something else uh, about Ted Lasso that I think is really significant and important. And that is that, you know, Americans do have a kind of global reputation that that is very, uh, it's varied, right? Sure. So we think as Americans that we make awful tourists. Actually, the market research out there in the world is no people kind of like Americans. Yeah. Number one, we over tip. Right. Um, but, but two, uh, the, despite the reputation of Americans, we are more likely to try to learn the local language. We are very generous and very sweet natured. We smile at people, at, which is unexpected in certain places, yeah. you know, like Denmark or whatever. But France, um, France yeah. But yeah, but um, at the Ted Lasso quality that he brings to that show is actually, it's based on people's real experience with Americans, which is we are well-meaning bumpkins. We are, yeah. we are not sophisticated, but we sure are our hearts in the right place and Canadians, same way. And Australians, Canadians, Australians, Americans, um, you'll find that the, despite our reputations internally, we're kind of well-liked. Now this, that is completely independent of whatever various governments do. Okay. So absolutely. Whatever the administrations do, the, the national character is actually kind of sweet natured and what it, what happens is the more oxygen you give to our negative impression, the more people feel like that's how they ought to behave. Right. And I, I for and part of my impulse in doing the stories is to try to be a an antidote and try to be a reminder that people are actually pretty cool. I uh, the, some of the things I've seen and heard as a result of being out there and and some of the feedback I'm getting is really encouraging. Isn't it heartwarming for, for even personally to know yeah. that you're making a difference? But let me ask you a question because I had to, my first book was sort of the sappy dad book. And it was just when I was turning 40 and I'll be 60 this year. Um, it was kind of a love letter to my kids. I'm sort of like, if I look back at the end of my life, what do I want to have learned and earned and loved and lost? And 
And I found myself just the exercise of mining my life because I, because my publisher had deadlines and I had to have certain <laughs> amount of words written and I would take Fridays off for about two months. And I would just try and think of the stories. I mean, it's so easy for people to tell the starfish story or other crap like that. But as I listen to your stories, of course, they're, they're about you and the experiences that you had, but they're so universal. How do you, how do you mine? How do you choose which stories? How do you realize, oh my God, I got to come up with a story for this week's video. What's your process for that? Right. And so what I, what I will be doing is I will literally go, um, I will think about a, a year. Like I'll go, okay, you know, 1975, what was, what was happening? Where was I? In my yeah. head back then, 1985, 1995. And I will, I'm trying to find the right page so you can see it because no, sure. it's pretty funny that some of the notes that I make myself, but um, I'll really just go back in time and think what, what happened that year. And in general, and to go back to the Orwell quote, in general, it's some mistake I made. Like I'll, I'll beat myself up and then I'll say, you know what, you know how I can get over beating myself up of this? I'm going to make something out of this. I'm going to, I'm going to tell people the lesson that I learned from this mistake. And little things I did that were inadvertently racist that I wasn't aware of. And I shared a story like that. Uh, did you? Oh yeah. In, in yeah. my, in my sappy dad book. Um, well, look at that. That's great. For those watching the video version, watch the video and you can see as well. That's great. And you have, you have great artistic penmanship. Mine <laughs> would be chicken scratch. Um, and then from that, do you develop? Cause here's one of the things I love about your stories as well um, is they have characters, they have dialogue uh, it's not so-and-so said this is when so-and-so says this, uh -huh. you say it as them <laughs> saying this, right? That got me into trouble, by the way, David. Oh, I can imagine because there, there'll always be those sense of saying you're mocking, but nobody who yeah. watches your stuff thinks for a minute that you're mocking any particular ethnicity. And yeah, it's, but but let them. It's, you happened. know. I've felt so awful, by the way. Oh my God, David, the, the sensation that you feel when you know that somebody thought you were disrespecting somebody that's a, it, that it's kills. the hardest thing in our business though neil you know i when i started speaking somebody said listen five percent of your audience will not like you no matter what you do and yeah, you can true. say it's about them but there's something else i got heckled once um i was speaking <laughs> mentions i mentioned a huge oh, event no. for the national association oh, of realtors no. and i mentioned something about chick-fil-a and i they're screaming they hate gays I'm oh like, okay okay and i and okay. i took a pause and i said all right let's Let's move on. I'll have, a, yeah. I'd love to have a conversation with you, but can we move forward? But yeah, yeah. Boy, I'm telling you, if we so worried about, um, I mean, if we come with a good heart and there's nothing that's overtly, uh, if you worry about everybody, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be posting content. Yeah. And you how, know, how but, do you, how do you, how do you strike that balance? Okay. Of recognizing well, here's the, here's the thing is that when this, like I say, this, this really got to me, it got to me because I had had only the best intentions. I'll tell you the story if you don't mind. No, it, please. It goes like this. We have so, as much time as you want. I, when I was in Hong Kong, I, I lived there for two years and I was completely out of my depth. Now people don't really understand how incredibly different uh, Chinese culture is from Occidental culture. Right. And, and, you know, I, I discovered just how stupid I was when um, I was out there. Well, as it happened, I had a, a friend who was from Mumbai and he was uh, incredibly intelligent. And he had this, to my ear, his English was gorgeous. It was, it was soft and elegant. His diction was beautiful. His choice of words was so lyrical and educated that in my head, 
when I was imitating him, it was a love letter to this, how I saw this guy. Right. But it was an Indian accent. Sure. And I'll, I'll just tell you, I'm going to just say one phrase in particular. You listen, I'm, you have permission on this show. We've all heard the, the, the pre-qualification of this. <laughs> okay. But you know, you but, weren't doing horrible stereotypes of I had convenience stores or things like that. No, this, I had this is honest. Go ahead. So what happened? You're free. There was this, at the end of the story, the story was basically about how I had had an incident that happened and it had opened a kind of window of consciousness briefly. One and of my I'd, favorite I, stories that you've told. Oh, I love that one. Oh my God. And what had happened was that a, a neuroscientist who I had met at a party in Menlo Park had explained to me the, the physiology, the, the, chem, the brain chemistry that had led to that. And then it wasn't any great revelation. It was simply, it, it was an experience of, uh, of opioids uh, self-generated opioids, uh, creating right. a sensation of was and, and in doing so, for those who haven't seen it, he diminished your experience by just dismissing it as chemicals in your well, blood. To be fair to him, he didn't realize that right. I had, I had interpreted it in incredibly mystical ways. Okay. Right. So well, all he was doing was he was just saying, Oh, uh, just to inform you about why that happened. It happened like this. And I was very crestfallen because I thought, Oh, that's, Oh, and here I thought it was this profound, um, revealing moment. Okay. So then years and years go by. And then I tell Kieran, this man, I respect, I told him the story and his version of it was quite different. And he was disappointed in the neuroscientist. And the last line he said was for all his intelligence, he belittles the profound. And I thought, Oh, what a beautiful phrase. And it rolled off his tongue in, in, in a beautiful, beautiful dialect. Exactly. To my right. ear, yeah, uh, Indian accented English is what, some of the most pleasant. Okay. Sure. But unfortunately, for some people, they interpreted that as me. I don't know. You know, they would say mocking. Yeah. And you, and, you were, you were reliving and reflecting. And so my daughter says to me, she, so she can tell. I, I'm, and how old is she, by the way? She's 22. Okay. So she says to me, look, I don't, don't let it bother you, but let me just fill you in. If you're worried about something like that, then let me ask you a question. If he was standing right in front of you right now, would you use that, that accent? And I, oh, okay. Hmm. Interesting. In other words, if, if you're going to, if you're going to use a story and you're going to tell a story like this, just try to picture the people sitting right in front of you and then ask yourself if you would tell it that way. And you know what? I thought, oh, okay, you know, maybe not. Maybe I'm not. And uh, so it's a learning. It was a learning but, experience. But it's, all, it's a good sensitivity to have. But, I, but I'll tell you, and let's, we're going back to story, is stories have characters and stories have textures and heroes. And of course, and it's never you. And there was something Gandhi-esque about your presentation of that story that added a layer, uh, a texture of, of wisdom and it's it, it, the final line of that. I actually wrote it down. So, I mean, that, that's how profound. Um, and for those who are watching and listening, remind us what that that story, that vignette is called. Um, it's called What Actually Went Down. Okay. Neil Ford, What Actually Went Down. I encourage you. We're short on time, but that one um, probably touched me the most. There was other ones, the one about the uh, um, the, the guy in the future or who sent the note with the, uh, oh, the circuit board. I love that story. Oh, true story. God. I mean, they're, yeah, by and oh, large, they're well, all true stories. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the best part of it. Um, and I'd love to go into all, I encourage everybody who is watching and listening, 
This is your daily Ted Lasso. You want the high concept <laughs> pitch? The high concept pitch. This is Paul Harvey meets Ted Lasso. Uh, and well, and David, that's very quickly wisdom. becoming a fan of yours. Yeah, no, I, I, no, please stop. Please, no more. Stop. Um, but no, look them up. Look them up. So here's my here's a couple of questions. So besides continuing, which of course we always hope you do, just as we hope that what's his name kept writing Calvin and Hobbes forever, but there was oh always an, yeah, an end at some point. I look at it, this is things like this is my comfort. This is what I, you know, in addition to some inappropriate stuff I send to my brothers just because it's fun. <laughs> Um, cause we're guys, um, and for those listening, please don't get offended. I'm not talking about horribly cruel. It's just funny things. This is my, this is my daily or every other day, Ted Lasso. Um, is this a book? Yeah. Do you take what is, what's becomes 50, 60,000 words and realize I'm going to take the best of the best, right? Rewrite it for the page. And yeah, uh, I, I'm working book. on right, that right Good. now. I have a, a wonderful woman out in New Jersey. I figured. So helping pass I figured. Things. I figured. All right. Um, quick speed round that we yeah. do at the end. You ready for this? Ready. Okay. I'm going to put on my my smart guy glasses to do this. Okay. <laughs> speed, speed round. Um, what was your most unexpected comment or response to a video? Uh, well, it was. It was. Um, Sorry. Wow. Talk about, I'm, I'm blowing the speed round thing. No, it's right. Uh, let me answer that two ways, if you don't mind. So the first way is the unexpected comment or response was, holy cow, this got a big response. In other words, uh, I was I was astonished at how people felt the way I felt. Uh, and, you know, there's a lesson in that, by the way, David. Right. We are we are not meant to face this life alone. We are not meant to take this journey alone. And if there was one thing that just absolutely put the wind under, into my sails, it was, holy cow, Neil, there's a lot of people out there who feel like you feel. Oh, my God, that ought to make you feel pretty good. It's, you know what? We're not so bad. Okay, so that was one reaction. And then the second unexpected reaction was when people went after me for the accent thing. And that really hurt. Uh, yeah. It hurt because I could see their point. And it was well-intentioned. And you, you didn't, well you, you, you didn't I, want to hurt anybody's feelings. And I then didn't you realize you did. To. But yeah. when I but when I saw that I did, I thought, oh, dang, that's shoot. You know, there's nothing makes you uh, flinch as much as when you know you're kind of wrong. Yeah. Or if not wrong, at least you were you were being insensitive. And that that's when I really get angry is when I get mad at myself. Yeah. So that was the. That, right. but the there, and there's a story in the mea culpa as well. Maybe that might, might come out of that as well. Yeah. What here's the, here's the other question. What what do you hope will come of this? Well, uh, as I say, I don't think we're meant to take on life alone. And what's happened between between our media and uh, things like the pandemic and um, and you know recessions or what have you, people often feel like they're in, they're in competition with one another. I think they are artificially inflating the degree to which we are in competition, and that yeah. the human the human species, our great superpower that people don't seem to recognize is our capacity for teamwork and cooperation and the 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 thirst for togetherness we all i think it's being i think this that american culture is being sold a bill of goods that the most admirable figure is the lone cowboy doing things on their own the great man the great right. man who would succeed no matter what as opposed to no somebody who is really really good at uh, at 
helping people cooperate and work together and join as a unit and celebrate their triumphs as a team. I'll ask you a, I'll ask you a sincere question. David, if you could get an Olympic gold medal in any sport, which one would it be? Legitimate sport? Yeah. Uh, boy, that's a good one. Javelin catching. Oh, wait, that's not a real <laughs> one. That's that's not a real one. Um, yikes. I, 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 and I try to draw a distinction between the ones I enjoy watching and what I would like to participate in. Okay. Uh, probably some. My, my father um, was a huge UCLA fan. He grew up in Southern Cal. And so we love to watch track and field together. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to be the fastest man in the world. How's that? I, I feel you there. Um, who doesn't want to be able to say bolt? But, but I'll tell you why I asked the question. Because if you could have been a member of the 1980 men's Olympic hockey team. There you go. Yeah. Do you believe the, in miracles? Yes. Oh, Al yeah. Michaels, the best. Herb, Herb Brooks, the coach of that team. Yeah. His very famous remark was, I don't want the best players. I want the right players. And he needed people who would die before they would let their teammates down. And he got him. And what if I remember thinking uh, that if you had won a gold medal on that team, you could be 95 years old and still find somebody who felt that feeling like that team. Do you know what I mean? Can you imagine remember how- like it was yesterday? Like it was right. Because everything came together. It was a team. They were underdogs. They were college kids against the pseudo professional Russians. The 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 unexpected, the, the, the joy. But the, okay, so you've nailed it with that word, because it was the joy. It was the shared joy. Yeah, you're just not going to have that same sense when you could you can be the world's fastest man and you can win a gold medal in the hundred meter, but twenty years from now, you won't be able to sit with somebody and have a beer and have them know how you feel because they felt it too because they were there and because you share it because it was mutually one it amplifies the joy and i think this is something underestimated by us and that one we ought to work a little harder for this is what i'm hoping for and i'm saying is 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 that part of what's driving you is recognizing that that what you're sharing is your story but it's it's our collective experience the the feedback i was getting the sudden recognition that other people felt how i felt that was so reassuring to me it was so like food and drink to me that i think Oh, if I can get these messages out into the world and make somebody else feel like they're not alone, then uh, you know what? Mission accomplished. Uh, It'll be like my personal gold medal. Great conversation with the uh, amazing and profound Neil Ford. What a good man you are. (laughs) I really appreciate the time. God bless you, too. Listen, uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what formal channel can they do? How can they look you up besides the- I'm, I'm super easy. Yeah. I'm super easy because I'm the only one on earth that spells the name, my name on the way I yeah. do. So it's N-E-A-L-F-O-A-R-D. And it's just neilford at gmail.com. Just email me. And um, I also have a, a company. I, I will teach storytelling and I teach um, uh, brand communications. And I go under the, the URL, passionatelogic.com. Um, but again, if you want to just reach out to me, I'm, I yeah. What, what an opportunity to, to sit at the feet of the master. I really encourage you. You'll get hooked. Um, 
but but watch the videos on I watch them on TikTok uh, for as long as that's going to be around, uh, <laughs> right. YouTube and Instagram yeah. as well. And send not them to YouTube. It, consume it. Drink this up with a spoon and share it with others. Uh, I, I think this is this is a spark that becomes a brush fire. Uh, I, I think your brand is is being built and refined uh, almost inadvertently. But I but I appreciate the friendship. I appreciate the stories. It's one of those things that I think people who watch this will feel like they know you. And I think the authenticity with which you uh, ply your trade um, validates that. I think they do know you. I think we do know you by the stories that you tell. And I appreciate that, my friend. Wow, David, I appreciate that remark. That's, That's it. Hang on. We're going to talk on the other end. Um, quick self-promotion. Uh, big thanks to Neil Ford. You can pick up a copy of my new book. Let me grab it here from underneath here. It's called The Morning Huddle, like Neil does its stories. It's 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 sparking conversation. And the tagline is powerful customer experience conversations to wake you up and shake you up and win more business. Um, in fact, all of my books that are strategically located next to my head are available on amazon.com. Be sure to click to like this podcast. That's important. Subscribe. You'll hear these great conversations as we go into the new year. Um, and then click the little bell icon to receive notifications and new events. Leave a comment. That's important as well. Uh, and if you want to learn more about my keynote speaking, my consulting, look me up at davidavering.com. Big thanks to my, my friend, Neil Ford. Look him up, watch his videos. And uh, that's it. I'm David Averin. Be good. This has been the Why Customers Leave podcast with David Averin. Be sure to leave a comment and click the like button. You can listen to or watch past episodes and be notified of future ones by hitting the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform or check them out on David Averin's YouTube channel. David's popular books are all available online and also in Kindle and audiobook form as well. You can learn more about David's keynote speaking and business consulting at davidaverin.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>